Hi, and welcome to a podcast by the Institute for Pentecostal Theology at Regents Theological College. My name is Simo Frestadius, and I'm the Executive Director of the IPT. Today is my privilege to interview Dr. John Usher, who is a research fellow at the IPT on his recently published book, Cecil Paul Hill, Missionary, Gentleman and Revivalist. This work has received very good endorsements from Pentecostal scholars and scholars of Pentecostalism. For example, at the back of the work published by Brill, Cecil Robeck from Fuller Theological Seminary says this, it is extremely rare to find among those who have written on early Pentecostal figures, many who have taken the time to work in such detail. And it may be the first such study that I have found on a British figure. It is first rate. So welcome, John. Hi, nice to be here. And uh, I suppose just to get things going, a simple question. How do you think your book could be described in just one sentence? Oh, good question. Um, hmm. From one of the reviews, essential reading for anyone interested in early Pentecostalism. Very good, very good. Uh, so, obviously, it's about Pentecostal history. It's about Cecil Paul Hill. So, what drew you to researching or what has drawn you into researching Pentecostal history generally and Cecil Paul Hill more particularly? Well, you know, I can tell you the exact moment. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember it very well. Um, I was an MA student here at Regents uh, Theological College in 2008 uh, in a lecture on Pentecostal history delivered by Dr. Neil Hudson. And he he put on the projector what has become, I think, the iconic picture of the Cambridge Seven missionary group um, when they are all sitting in Chinese clothing shortly after arriving in China in 1885. Um, and he said, one of one of the Cambridge Seven was so Paul Hill. And he said, you know, we know that Paul Hill was significant and financially generous, but we don't know that much more about him. Mm -hmm. And I think up until that point, I had always been under the impression that Pentecostalism was a thoroughly working class denomination. So I was fascinated by the involvement of an Eton and Cambridge educated Anglican landowner and, and, and what that might have looked like. And honestly, I, I really gripped my heart. Um, and from that moment onwards, I became really quite distracted by that topic. And it turns out that he was, along with Alexander Body, a father of British Pentecostalism. Mm. Thank you. A very special moment there in the lecture. Um, so why, why, why should Christians and pastors, or indeed anyone, care about historical work like this, or indeed care about history? Oh, you know, I, I've got so much to say about that question, <laughs> um, but we're limited for time. So I'll try to just zone in and focus in on, on a few examples. I mean, there's simple reasons like not wanting to appear ignorant. You know, that's that's going to diminish the impact of anything you say. But let me think of a let me let me tell you about a less obvious 
connection and this obvious example. So we often think of prophecy as uh, predicting the future. But if you look into the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, which is history, let's face it, what you often find is that the, the, the prophets, before they give any sort of future predictions, they give an interpretation of the past. And so it's interesting to, to, to think about the implications of that, that actually when we're doing history and we're interpreting history, it, that is a, a facet of prophecy. So let's take an example. Haggai chapter 1 verse 9. So what it, it's uh, the the uh the the Israelites have returned from uh exile but it's before they've built the second temple and uh, what we read is you expected much but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why declares the Lord Almighty? because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. And, and again, in, in Amos chapter 2, um, verses 6 to, to 16, so this is before um, Samaria has fallen um, to the Assyrians, and, and Amos is, is preaching against the injustices in society, and he says, look what you've done here, Father, and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. I trampled the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. Now then, I will crush you, Israel, as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. And of course, that is what happened. Israel fell, the northern kingdom fell. And, and so you see it time and time again, this format in the prophets, where they're not just going straight in and predicting the future, but they're interpreting history first. They're interpreting the past first. Now, I'm not the first person to have observed this. In the fourth century, a church father called Diodore of Tarsus wrote, prophecy means primarily the explanation of things which are unclear, whether future or past, whether present or hidden. So it's, it's important that we, we, we look into history and try to, try to discern what God was doing there and, and why, and that informs our future. Now, a couple of perhaps simpler examples. Now, I took part in a rowing challenge up the Thames uh, a few years ago for charity. Now, there were five of us in that boat, Waterman's Cutter, it was called. But four out of five of us were facing backwards, rowing. We were still moving forwards, but most of us were looking backwards. There's only one of us looking forwards. So understanding history is about knowing how you got where you are in order to move forward effectively. You need to know that. Otherwise, you're just being carried along by the current. And a final mm -hmm. example um, from from Africa, there's, there's something called a, a Sankofa bird symbol used in Africa, and particularly Ghana. And and Sankofa means go back and get it, basically to to seek and to take. And this bird is always 
um, fashioned so that the head is, it, the body's pointing forwards, but the head is facing backwards. And often there's something in the bird's mouth, like a berry or some food or something. And so basically it's, it's, the message is, don't forget the lessons of the past and mm-hmm. you'll move forward into a more successful future. Very good. So, yeah, as a Pentecostal people, we often talk about the prophethood of all believers. So I like your concept of prophetic history. I'm also reminded of um, a quote by uh, Søren Kierkegaard, where he says that we understand backwards, but we live forwards. Mm. I say, yeah, good, good insights. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that, in a sense, your engagement with Paul Hill goes back all the way to 2008. Yeah. So obviously this has been a, a kind of a, a journey of exploration for over 10 years. Yeah. In researching and writing this book, what were some of the main new insights that you realized? Yeah, it's been, it's been a long journey. I mean, I, of course, I've done other things. <laughs> I haven't spent the last 12 years just researching Paul Hill, but that has been, um, if you like, my main research topic for, for the last mm-hmm. kind of 12 years. So, okay, we already knew in principle that Cecil, along with Alexander Boldy, had been important for early Pentecostal early Pentecostalism. I mean, um, fundamentally important. So Do- Donald G. writes in his book, The Pentecostal Movement, later renamed Wind and Flame, nothing will ever diminish the debt of lasting gratitude, which under God, the Pentecostal movement in the British Isles owes to Alexander A. Body and Cecil Paul Hill for their devoted leadership during its earliest years. Yet, for some reason, nobody wrote a biography about Paul Hill and he was sort of forgotten largely after 1925. So I think what became clear to me is that he wasn't just Mr. Moneybags. Um, before Paul Hill came along, um, there was really very little focus on international mission within early British Pentecostalism. And he believed that this lack of focus had been the cause of the decline of the Welsh revival. So he brought this a missionary focus to the movement, which gave it a purpose. And, you know, when, mm-hmm. when movements have purpose, they, they move forward, they grow. When they don't have purpose, they flounder. Um, and so he, he also brought unprecedented levels of professionalism to Pentecostalism. And we still benefit from this today because British Pentecostalism today is built to a great extent upon the structures that he put in place to meet the needs of a functional international mission, colleges, councils, administrative procedures, etc. Let's not forget that George Jeffries, the founder of Elim, was training as an international missionary in one of the colleges that Paul Hill set up before he became a domestic evangelist. So mm-hmm. he brings this, this really this incredible combination of resources, know-how, and vision. You know, mm-hmm. People often they have vision, but they don't have resources. Um, yeah. But he had all three of those key elements, and, and when they work together, they can really achieve a great deal under God. 
Mm. You've already started kind of answering my, my next question, but maybe you could put your finger on one or two things specifically. What do you think that Pentecostals and charismatic Christians today can learn from the life of Paul Hill? So discern God's purpose for your life and consecrate yourself to that purpose. It might not be particularly glorious, but what we learn from Paul Hill is that single-minded consecration has lasting results. Um, you know, when he inherited his fortune, um, he, he had already lost his first wife, he'd lost a young son. He could have just, he'd had a hard life up to that point in many ways, um, a difficult time on the mission field in China and Tibet. And he could have just taken that money and relaxed, found a new wife and had a really comfortable life. But he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. He, he, you know, he consecrated himself to what he believed was God's purpose. Uh, he didn't remarry. He focused on that. He, he put all of his energy and his resources into that purpose. And we can be really grateful for that today. Yeah. What do you hope will be the book's main contribution? And who particularly would you want to read it? Well, you know, Simo, I'm sure um, you understand as a, as a fellow author that I want as many people as possible <laughs> to buy and to read my book. Who, you know, who doesn't? Yeah. So is this a good Christmas present? Absolutely. <laughs> um, maybe not for a five-year-old, but um, yeah, for, for an intelligent adult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what? This, this is mainly, seriously, this is mainly going to be of interest to students of contemporary church history, mission history, and mm -hmm. Pentecostalism. And for and for those who love reading about interesting people, I mean, he really was an interesting and colourful character. You know, the the adventures that he had in China and and the impact that he had over back in the UK are fascinating stories, and and it's it's really really nicely illustrated as well with lots of um, photographs and things like that from his uh, archive at Harvey Hall. So. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it it's a good read. Mm. And just maybe in a sentence, what what would you want to be the book's main contribution? Oh yeah, so um, I I well, I want this. I, I suspect that this is going to be like a fundamental building block when it comes to Pentecostal history. Uh, yeah, and and others will come along and they'll pick bits out of it and they'll build. Um, other bits of this, um, the, what could we call it? The temple of Pentecostal history sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> the structures, the, the buildings of church history that we, that we walk through and learn in um, yeah, a fundamental building block. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, John. And thank you all for listening. From the Institute for Pentecostal Theology, we would like to wish you Happy Advent and uh, Merry Christmas. The next podcast will come out in the new year. So bye for bye -bye. now. Bye-bye.